0: So we have begun a new sermon series focused on the theme of spiritual growth. And this is important. We need to understand how we grow spiritually in order to become the truest version of ourselves. And the other reason why this is important is because there's an awful lot of people who simply don't know where they stand spiritually. And it's only as you look at what the Bible has to say about what it means to grow as a Christian that you may realize that perhaps you're not a Christian at all because those qualities and characteristics that are associated with growth are not evident in your life. And so this could be an important wake-up call. So what I'd like us to do is uh, get you caught up to speed and recap some of the things that we've covered over the last few weeks because each of these sermons builds on top of one another. And the repetition can be helpful. It may be that as I repeat some of these themes, they'll sink in a little bit deeper. And on the other hand, you might prefer the quick recap rather than the sermon itself. So we'll see. But we began by considering the stages of growth. We said that a Christian grows in developmental stages. And we put it like this. A new Christian starts out as a baby. A growing Christian is an adolescent Christian. And then a mature Christian is someone who has reached a a higher stage of development but the thing is if you think that you're mature you're probably not and those who are mature Christians rarely realize it but then we turn from those stages of growth to the engine of growth and we said that repentance and faith is the engine the combustion cycle the dynamic that propels the Christian life I said that repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. You can never have one without the other. You can never have repentance without faith. You can never have faith without repentance. In other words, in order to repent, you need to simultaneously believe that God is reaching out to you with his love and grace and is ready to embrace you as his own and you can never believe the gospel without turning away from sin and self. So, in other words, in order to repent, you have to repent believingly. And in order to believe, you need to believe penitently. The two always go together. So, we likened repentance and faith to the two pistons in an engine. And the two pistons in an engine are constantly firing in order to turn the crankshaft and create the rotational energy that propels the vehicle forward. And so in a similar way, repentance and faith need to be constantly firing in your life in order to propel your movement, your growth and grace. So we begin the Christian life by repenting and believing for the first time, but we don't simply repent and believe and then never again. No, all of life is repentance. The more we repent, the more we experience his love and grace, the more we grow into Christ's likeness. So last week, we contrasted the figure of Simon the Pharisee and an unnamed woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus explained that there was more love and joy operating in that woman's life in contrast to Simon Because her repentance was deeper. She knew the size of her debt. And therefore, Jesus says, the one who loves little, the one who is forgiven little, loves little, but the one who is forgiven much, loves much. So, the the, the point that Jesus was trying to make is that as you grow in the Christian life, you become more aware of how worse off you are. So, cheer up. You're worse than you think. As you grow in the Christian life, you become more aware of the heights of God's holiness and the depth of your sin. But the more your awareness of your need grows, the more you see that gap between you and God growing the more your appreciation for the forgiveness that Jesus offers through his life and his death and his resurrection grows. And so the the Christian doesn't repent less and less over time. No, the true Christian repents more and more over time. And the more you repent, the more you recognize your need and receive his grace, the more your heart wells up with love and joy and gratitude for everything that he has first done for you. And that is what propels the Christian life. So that's the recap. Let's see if the sermon is any help in addition to that. But with that foundation laid, I'd like us to move on by taking a look at repentance and faith at a deeper level. And I'd like us to consider true and false forms or counterfeit forms of repentance based on what the Apostle Paul has to say to the Christians in Corinth. So we're gonna look at this interchange in 2 Corinthians chapter seven. And as we consider the Corinthians sorrow, I'd like us to consider three things, the cause, the form, and the result of their sorrow. So if you would, let me invite you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter seven. I'll be reading verses five through 10. You'll find this passage printed in your order of worship, and you can also find it on page 967 in the Pew Bible. For even when we came into Macedonia, Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is God's word, it's trustworthy, and it's true. And it's given to us in love. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page without you. Without you, the Bible is a closed book. And so we pray that the same spirit who once inspired these words might illuminate them now so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts and lead us to a real encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, if you think that a mature Christian is someone who repents and believes once and then it's smooth sailing after that, this passage should put all those thoughts out of your mind. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has written that we might have in our mind a conception, a picture of a quote-unquote successful Christian who lives the victorious Christian life by displaying perfect faith and trust, by obeying God in everything, and having no worry, no fear, no anxiety. And that picture of the successful Christian might be a little depressing because we know that we don't measure up to that. That's not our reality. And yet we have this picture in our minds because, after all, didn't the Apostle Paul say that we should rejoice always? That we should pray without ceasing, that we should give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what they are, and that we should have no anxiety. He said, have no anxiety about anything. And yet, that very same person who wrote all those words, the Apostle Paul, provides us with a deeply personal and revealing picture of his state of mind in this passage. You see, after surviving a rather terrible ordeal in the city of Ephesus, located on the western shore of Turkey, Paul travels north and west to Macedonia in northern Greece and there he's waiting for his colleague Titus to travel from Corinth, a city in southern Greece, up to meet him in Macedonia. And so every day he's waiting for news from Titus and every day goes by and he hasn't heard anything. So in verse five, he tells us that they're physically exhausted and emotionally drained. They're afflicted on all sides. He says we're dealing with fighting without and fears within. And I think that we can probably relate to Paul's experience, even if ours is not exactly the same. Paul wakes up every day, Hoping for the best, but then bracing himself for the worst. And every day that Titus doesn't arrive with good news just sets him up for further disappointment. And I think we all know what that's like. We're waiting for good news too. Will we get into school? Will we get that job? Will we get married? Will we be pregnant? Will we get a good prognosis? And so we, like Paul, hope for the best, but then brace ourselves for the worst. And so what does having no anxiety then mean for Paul? Well through this very honest portrait we can see that when Paul says have no anxiety that doesn't mean that he was immune to worry or fear. Having no anxiety for Paul meant that he took all of those anxious fears all of those anxious fears that weighed on him day in day out and he cast them upon God. That's what it means to have no anxiety. Take all those anxious fears and cast them upon the Lord, which means that Paul had to repent and believe every day. Every day he had to repent and believe the gospel again. Yesterday's faith is gone. Yesterday's faith doesn't matter for Paul or for me or for you. Following Jesus is a matter of trusting him day by day, moment by moment. So Paul had to repent and believe every day. And that's what the Corinthians had to learn to do as well. Repent and believe every day. So this interchange between Paul and the Corinthians reveals the difference between true and false forms of repentance. And so the first thing that I'd like us to consider is the cause of the Corinthian sorrow. In verse 8, Paul refers to a letter that he had previously sent He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. So he wrote a letter that caused them sorrow. Now, we don't know the exact contents of this letter, but it's clear that Paul had to address some kind of difficult issue. He had to address some kind of difficult pastoral issue. And in some ways, it's better that we don't exactly know what it was. Because the point is, it could be anything. But it was sufficiently serious enough that the letter that Paul wrote was stern. He had to write a stern letter. He had to be very direct. So much so that it hurt to hear it. It hurt to hear whatever Paul had to say. And now Paul is worried. Paul was worried that this letter upset them so much that they were going to rebel against him. As their leader. They were going to rebel against him as their pastor, as their apostle. And you see, this is part of the difficulty of living the Christian life. This is certainly part of the difficulty of being a pastor. As Christians, we're called to speak the truth in love to one another. And as I've said before, sometimes that means that we get to tell people what they've been waiting all their lives to hear, and there's nothing better. But sometimes speaking the truth in love means telling people something they don't want to hear at all. And I can't tell you how many times as a pastor sitting across the room or a table from someone else, I've, I've wished, I've wished I could just tell people what they want to hear. That whatever they're thinking or whatever they're doing is okay. But that would be irresponsible. That would be faithless. And so if we're going to speak the truth and love to one another, sometimes that means that we need to say something that they don't want to hear and it can hurt to hear it. And that's what happened here. That was the cause of the Corinthian sorrow. That's the context. But now I want to turn from the cause of their sorrow to its form. Because what Paul now goes on to talk about is two different kinds of sorrow. There's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. And they lead to two different kinds of repentance. A false form of repentance and a true form of repentance. And as I reflected on this this week, It was rather convicting because it occurred to me that as I look back over my past, there were probably many, many times where I thought that I was repenting, but I really wasn't. What I experienced was not the godly sorrow, but the worldly sorrow that Paul is talking about. And if that's true of me, I I suspect it's probably also true of you. So let's look at these two contrasting forms of sorrow. What do we mean by worldly sorrow? Well, worldly sorrow, essentially, is nothing more than self-pity. Worldly sorrow is self-pity. Let's say you do something wrong. You make a terrible mistake. You really screw up. And you feel guilty and you feel ashamed for what you've done. You might regret it. But what you're really frustrated about is what you have brought upon yourself. See, you're, you're not just sorry for the sin. You're sorry for the trouble that it has caused you. You're not just sorry that you did it. You're sorry that you got caught. And you're upset because now you realize, well, there's going to be consequences. You're going to have to pay for what you've done. You, you, you've just made your life more difficult. And you might think to yourself, well, I wish it had never happened. Or I wish I had never done that. Or I wish somehow that, that things could go back to the way they had once been. Or, or you're worried, well, now I'm going to get punished. Now I'm really going to get it from my spouse or my parents or my boss or my colleagues. So you regret what you did. But the reason why you regret it because, is because of what it will cost you So you're really focused on yourself. It's all about you. You feel sorry for yourself. So you see, worldly sorrow is actually just a superficial, shallow form of remorse that is marked by bitterness and self-pity. You really just feel sorry for yourself. You haven't yet learned to hate the sin. You still like the sin. That's why the sin still has power over you. You just hate the consequences, not the sin itself. So what does it mean then to have godly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow is different because you're not sorry for yourself, you're sorry for the sin itself. You don't just hate the consequences or you don't just hate yourself because you were so stupid for what you did. No, you hate the sin and not primarily because of what it costs you, but because of what it costs God. Now that's when you know that you're dealing with godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow. You're not sorry about what it cost you. You're sorry for what it cost God. And so you see the difference there? You haven't really repented until you hate the sin for what it does to God, not primarily because of what it does to you. But when you realize that, then you can say, along with David in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I ultimately sinned. Or you can say, along with the prodigal, in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, Father, I have sinned against you heaven and before you And the reason why you can say that is because you realize that through your sin through whatever you did Whatever your mistake or your failure or your transgression was you did not merely break God's law But you broke his heart and That is what brings about that godly sorrow now I could give you an analogy to illustrate this from my own life, and this is this is kind of a sad story I was seven years old, and my family decided to take us on a trip to Disney World. We'd never done anything like this before, so this was very special. We went over spring break, but we were trying to save money. So we all stayed in one hotel room, which meant that my sisters could sleep in one of the beds, but my older brother and I had to sleep on the floor. And I was not at all happy about this. So I'm kicking and screaming, I'm crying my eyes out, and I'm keeping everybody awake with my temper tantrum. So there I am, lying on the floor beside my parents' bed, just crying because I don't have a bed to sleep in. And then my mom reaches out to me with her hand. So she reaches out to me with her hand. And at the time, I I didn't realize what she was doing. It's only after the fact that I realized that the reason why she was reaching out to me with her arm was to lift me up off the floor and to pull me into bed so that I could lie next to her and I'd have a bed to sleep on rather than the hard floor. But I didn't know that. So as she reaches out to me with her hand, I take her hand and I bite it as hard as I possibly can. I still feel bad about it. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry. (laughs) But you see, that is exactly what we do to God. We bite the hand that blesses us. And that is what produces godly sorrow. You see, it would be one thing if God were just a harsh taskmaster and we rebel against his laws because he doesn't understand. and He's just a tyrant. But the fact is that God is a loving father who reaches out to us with love and grace and we rebel against his love. And so when you realize that you haven't just broken God's law, but you've broken his heart through the things that we've done, through the things that you've done, That's what leads to that true sorrow. You're not sorry for yourself. You're sorry for your sin. You're not sorry about what it costs you. You're sorry about what it costs God. And that's what melts you. That's what changes you. So you see the difference then between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Not only do they have a different cause, but they also lead to a different result. Now, the irony here is that Paul was worried That the Corinthians were going to be so upset with him about the stern letter that he had to write to them that they were going to rebel against him as their leader. But what he didn't know is that the, the tables have turned because now that Titus has actually made that trip from Corinth to Macedonia in northern Greece and reunited with Paul, Titus brings this amazing news that the letter had actually cut the Corinthians to the heart. And they changed their ways. In response to what Paul had written to them about and so Titus expresses to Paul their longing their mourning their zeal for Paul and so now they're the ones who are worried now they're the ones who are anxious that when Paul makes the trip to Corinth and sees them that he's still gonna be upset with them and so Paul writes to say that he's so happy that that Titus has brought this good news and he writes to assure them now that he is rejoicing in the fact that this good news has come. And he goes on to explain that it's good that they experienced that sorrow because it led to a good thing. Though it caused, though that letter caused them to grieve at least for a little while, it eventually was a kind of grief that led them to repentance. So in verse 9, he goes on to say, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then in verse 10, Paul sums up the ways in which godly sorrow produces repentance in life, whereas worldly sorrow only leads to death. So he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And you can see here there's a little play on words going on with the word regret. On the one hand, he regrets that the letter caused them pain, even if it was only for a short period of time. But on the other hand, he doesn't regret sending the letter at all because they were grieved into repentance, and true repentance has no regrets. Right? When you experience true repentance, there is no regret because of the life that you've now found through it. So he contrasts these uh, two forms of sorrow and the results. And the Gospels provide us with a rather stark picture of what those two forms of sorrow look like in the end. See, on the one hand, you could take the picture of Judas Iscariot. Judas meets with the religious authorities, and he agrees to hand Jesus over to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And in a cruel twist, Judas signals that he will identify Jesus amidst the crowd and in the dark by betraying him with a kiss. I mean, is there anything worse to betray Jesus with a sign of affection? He's going to betray him with a kiss. But after that fateful night, when he does the dark deed, he's suddenly filled with remorse because he realizes that he has betrayed an innocent man. And so he goes back to the chief priests and he tries to give him the money back, but they won't take it. They won't take his blood money. And so Judas takes the, the silver coins and he throws them, flings them at their feet. But then what does he do? He goes off and hangs himself. So you see, he's filled with remorse, but it's a worldly sorrow, not a godly sorrow, and it ultimately leads to despair and death rather than repentance in life. But then, by contrast, consider Peter. The apostle Peter bragged that he wasn't like all those other losers, right? Even if every other disciple lets Jesus down, he never will. He's going to follow Jesus through thick and thin. He'll follow Jesus to prison. He'll follow Jesus even unto death. And he dares, he dares to follow Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But then he proceeds to deny ever knowing Jesus three times without seeming to even realize what he's doing. And then the rooster crows. And he breaks down and cries like a baby. The Gospels tell us that he wept bitterly. But you see, here's the difference between Judas and Peter, remorse is not the same thing as repentance. Judas experienced remorse, regret, which led to self-hatred and despair. But Peter experienced godly sorrow that led to repentance and life. Because as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at John 21, Jesus not only forgives Peter, but he beautifully reinstates him. See, his godly sorrow, his, his bitter tears lead him back to Jesus, not away from him. And so the question for us then is, well, how do we cultivate godly sorrow rather than worldly sorrow? And the way that I would put it is like this, you have to bring your sin to Mount Calvary rather than Mount Sinai. You have to bring your sin to Mount Calvary rather than Mount Sinai. Now, I said that repentance and faith always go together. You never have one without the other, which means that if we're going to repent, we're going to turn away from from sin and self, then we have to believe the gospel again. So if repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin, you could also say like repentance is like the, the negative terminal on the battery and belief, faith, is the positive terminal on the battery. And so we need to focus not just on the negative, but also on the positive. If we're going to experience that godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that means that we not only turn away from the past, but we also believe the gospel again. So we need to bring our sin to Mount Calvary rather than Mount Sinai. Now, what do I mean by that? Most often, when people experience failure, when they sin, they assume that that represents a failure of willpower, which they need to correct through greater exertion of self-control. And so they bring their sin to Mount Sinai. Sinai is the place where God laid down his law, right? So if we're going to bring our sin to Mount Sinai, we remind ourselves of God's law. We remind ourselves of God's role as judge. And what do we do? We tell ourselves, well, this is wrong. What we just did—it's terrible. There's going to be consequences. We're going to have to pay for what we've done. We've just made our life harder, and we 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 try to work up our will in order to change our actions. And that might work in the short term, but it won't ultimately change us. Not in the long run. No, ultimately that will kill us because it just leads to despair. In that scenario, we don't really hate the sin; we still just hate the consequences, and we're trying to avoid the consequences. But if we want to truly experience lasting change, we have to bring our sin not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Calvary. In other words, the way in which we experience true lasting change is not through a greater exertion of self-control, but we experience true lasting change when we get a sense on our hearts of the depth of God's love for us that would make us stop and wonder, well, why would I want to do this thing, whatever it is, or why would I want to live this way in light of everything that Jesus has already done for me? So we take our sin and we hold it up and we look at it in the light of the cross and we think to ourselves, what love did Jesus demonstrate to, to save me from this thing? Jesus died so that I wouldn't do it, whatever it is. So it's only as we get a sense on our hearts of the depth of God's love for us that we truly begin to change. We need to recognize that we cannot simply focus exclusively on God's justice. We have to see his love. Rather than wailing on our will, we have to work on our hearts. And we have to realize that we bite the hand that blesses us. We have to realize that that we we bite the, the hand of the one who has stretched out his arm to us in love and grace. And that is what melts us. It's only when we're melted by God's love for us that we can truly change. And John Owen understood this. John Owen was a 17th-century pastor and theologian who said that we have to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to learn how to speak to our soul. It's sort of what the psalmists often do. They they would say, Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? We have, we have to learn to speak to our soul we have to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves and as we do that we bring our sin to mount calvary rather than mount sinai and this is how john owen put it he said bring your sin to the gospel say to your soul what have i done what love what mercy what blood what grace have i despised and trampled on is this the return i make to the father for his love to the son for his blood to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the blessed spirit has chosen to dwell in? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with him of so little value? And another Puritan of about that same time period said much the same thing. He said, how can I offend a God who has stretched out his arm to me as a friend? My heart must be made of marble. My heart must be made of iron if I could take the blood of Jesus and throw it back in his face. I mean, is that not a vivid image? That that when we not only break God's law, but we break his heart, it's as if we take the blood that Jesus shed for us on Calvary and throw it back in his face. You see, we have to consider not only God's justice, but his love for us, and that's what truly changes us. And that's not self-pity. That's true repentance, because you're not sorry for yourself. You're sorry for your sin. You don't just hate the consequences. You hate the sin itself. And what bothers you is not the cost to yourself, but what it costs God. And that is only that's the only thing that'll change you. And so when you get a sense on your heart of the depth of God's love for you, well, then that is what will lead you to turn away from your sin with grief and hatred. You learn to hate the sin, not just the consequences, and then you turn towards Jesus in faith with every intention of pursuing a fresh start and a new obedience. Now, of course... If we repent and believe, we recognize that ultimately all of our offenses are against God, but our offenses often affect other people too. And if that's the case, well, then we need to confess our fault to the others who have been harmed, and we need to ask for their forgiveness and to receive it, and then seek to make amends. We need to put right whatever we put wrong, and then take proactive steps to make sure that whatever took place will never happen again. But the point is that all of us i would suggest have changes to make all of us do and so this week like every week members of our prayer team will be available after communion and after the service to pray with and for you about anything that may be on your mind and heart and i would encourage you to come forward for prayer but some of you might identify yourselves as christians you come to church on a regular basis but as you hear my words today you might realize you know what I'm really not a Christian. I might have felt regret, I might have felt remorse in the past for some of the things that I've done, but I haven't truly repented. I might have been sorry for myself, but I've never been sorry for my sin. And if for the first time you've sensed what it means to truly turn away from self and to put your trust in Jesus, then there's no better time than the present. Repent and believe. And we would love to help you do that. But many of us have been Christians for a long time. We we know that the engine of the growth in the Christian life is repentance and faith, but at the same time we realize that our repentance is not all that deep. It often is superficial. And so we need to recognize that the more and more we repent, the better it is for us. Repentance is a little bittersweet, to be honest. Repentance is sort of like a, a sour, hard candy. And when you first taste it, it, it's bitter. We don't like to have to admit our faults and failures. We don't want to have to bring them out into the light and acknowledge them. But if we move past that initial phase of bitterness, there's a sweetness there. There's no greater joy. There's no greater joy than being able to come before the Father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But you've forgiven me. You have cast my sins into the depth of the sea. You've thrown them behind your back. You'll never bring them up again. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my sin from me. And that's why I love you. You see, the more we repent, the more we experience his love and grace in our lives. The one who is forgiven little loves little. The one who is forgiven much loves much. And so no matter who you are this morning, take an honest look at your heart. Ask yourself, have I actually experienced godly sorrow or only worldly sorrow? Get a sense on your heart of the depth of Jesus' love for you. Don't bite the hand that blesses you. See how he has stretched out his arm to you in love and grace through the cross and allow his love for you to melt you so that you truly repent and find life rather than despair and death. Repent and believe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's words to the Christians in Corinth and we pray that like them, we might experience a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance and life. Give us the grace to be able to see ourselves in our need for you and to delight in the forgiveness that you lavish upon us through the finished work of Christ so that we might know the love, the joy, the gratitude that only you can provide that propels our growth in grace. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.